Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you could possibly think of, has its own history. Like mugs, therapy and mattresses. Oh, mugs, therapy and mattresses. Love that one, Sam. Or we could do (laughs) bread, red, the head, the dead, the shed and he said, (laughs) she said. I think that would be excellent. However, for the moment, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining very carefully indeed how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew that the history of elves, yes, elves have a history, is in fact all about Louisa May Alcott and unpublished novels. It's about Swedish and Danish folklore and something called the Yule Goat. It's also all about David Sedaris and working in Macy's department store in New York City at Christmas time, including Manning the Vomiting Corner. (laughs) And it's also all about J.R.R. Tolkien, medieval literature, his friend with C.S. Lewis and the Battle of the Somme. Who knew? Or, Sam, who knew that the history of chaos is in fact all about Lady Jane Grey and Mary I, the Cultural Revolution in China, the science of unpredictability, the withdrawal from Afghanistan, lawless hours and days, social anarchy and lords of misrule. Hmm... Mm, There's stuff. some listening pleasure for your <laughs> eardrums. Absolutely. If you're wondering, if you're all fed up with our uh, our Christmas episodes, um, you're probably wondering who's telling you all this wonderful stuff. Let me say of my fellow presenter that if history was the future... What? Does that actually make sense? Yes. If history was the future, the ultimate challenge, of course, for histories of the unexpected, this man would carefully take out his Aztec scrying mirror and hold a seance in the court of the king to ascertain how the past would actually be the future in a crazy machine of time and visions. He is Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. He is James Daybell. And if any man could make the past the future, it is definitely him. Oh, Sam, you... I, I, I'm flattered, but I didn't understand a word of that. It's far too... T- far, far too convoluted for my... my- Poor brain at this time in the morning. However, you may well be wondering, who is that unattributed voice so ably helping Daybell co-pilot this very episode? Well, let's just say that if he were a wise man-related historian, he'd only be the embodiment of three wise men, Melchior, Caspar and Balthazar, all rolled into one. So noble and visionary is he as the true wise man of the past. Yes, you've guessed it. It's the famous historian historical adventurer himself, 
Dr. Sam Willis. Very good. It makes, flatters me, James. Um, hello, everyone. This is our, one of our many, many Christmas episodes. I think we've excelled this year particularly, James, um, and I hope you're enjoying them. We've done uh, Donkeys, I think, was my favourite, and Stars and Babies and all sorts of other things. And, of course, you can listen back through our back catalogue and listen to our other Christmas-themed episodes. Today, if you haven't worked it out yet, we are not doing nonsense. We are doing the history of wise men. Uh, which was, um, I was delighted when I came up with this idea. Or was it you, James? I, I think <laughs> it was, was you. I got an email me. saying, uh, wise men and generosity. Which wise is, men it's, and generosity. Yeah, it's, the kind it of, been... it's the kind of email I often get from you. Like a two-liner <laughs> of what we're going to be doing. <laughs> it doesn't make much sense. Um, so, uh, the history of wise, wise men... Um, very interesting. I immediately thought, um, as I mentioned in that mini introduction of you, of the wonderful John D. And um, spiritual advice to the monarchy. Um, he was a Tudor, uh, a magician, astrologer, mathematician. We write about him in our book, Histories of the Unexpected, the Tudors. And he had a wonderful thing, um, a, a, a mirror made out of obsidian so volcanic glass it was brought back to europe at some point between 1527 and 1530 from mexico and he used this to conduct seances and to to um uh, to see if he could see in his spirit mirror he would summon angels into its reflective surface and um and listen to what they taught him so here you've, it's quite interesting actually so what you've got here is a a a man who might have been considered wise by some wealthy individuals um, in the court, who is then in turn summoning wise people into his spirit mirror to tell him or um, what the other wise men need. So there's a kind of a, a hierarchy or a circle of wise men, everyone relying on each other, everyone kind of acknowledging that their own wisdom is limited and that to know what they need to know they have to ask someone else and if you think about wise men like that it does open up a um a, a huge amount of history so how do you uh determine who is a wise man how, how do you um accept their position of wisdom is it because of what they say is it because of what they've written does it have to have been published is it because of where they've been where they've been taught and there's a whole history of universities and oxbridge um and uh, examinations and schooling here which i thought was really really interesting indeed and and the um the, the clear balance between ignorance on one hand and the sort of wisdom or deferred wisdom of someone else on the other and how do you trust that person. Um, I'm sure that a, a man peering into an Aztec mirror would have convinced me if it was the 16th century, James. I'd be so blown away by the fact that uh, obsidian glass even existed. I'd be so impressed by the wisdom of this man to manage to get hold of one. And then by what he would say, I think I would be absolutely convinced by everything that that John D would say. Uh, me too. Me too. It makes me think of wise men and cunning folk, those sort of people on the edge of society who would be greatly revered and respected because they were crafty in all sorts of ways. I wanted to start with, uh, with a reading. Um, reading I didn't get chance to do last time round. This is from Christina Rossetti, just to set the tone. A Christmas Carol, it's called, and you'll probably be very familiar with it because it is, in fact, the words of a very famous Christmas Carol. It starts, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan, Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone, Snow had fallen, snow on snow, snow on snow, 
in the bleak midwinter long ago. Our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter a stable place sufficed, the Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Enough for him whom cherubim worship night and day, a breastful of milk and a manger full of hay. Enough for him whom angels fall down before, the ox and ass and camel which adore. Angels and archangels may have gathered there, cherubim and seraphim thronged the air, but only his mother in her maiden bliss worshipped the beloved with a kiss. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. And I, I say this, the payload is at the end there, the wise, the wise men at the end. And part of the, a very important part of the Christmas nativity story is these three magi. And this is the inspiration for what we're going to be talking about. This is part and parcel of the Christmas story. We've talked about this already. But one of the things that I want to emphasise and pick up upon here is not only the gifts that they give him of gold, frankincense, myrrh, but it's also the fact that we are told that they bow down before the newborn baby. When they hear him, and this is from the passage here, when they heard the king they set out, and there ahead of them went to the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And that's what I'm going to talk about, Sam. I'm going to talk about wise men and deference and mm. the gestures that are associated with that. And in particular, I'm going to talk about this in relation to the practice of kowtowing in China and mm. the diplomatic waves that that caused in the 19th century or late 18th and 19th century when Western diplomats got very upset about kowtowing as a form of total abasement. So that's where mm. I'm going. Good stuff. Looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. Let me start by talking about a, an object in the British Museum. It's oh, called the, Frank, the Frank's Casket. It's one of my favourite, mm. favourite things to see when you're up there at the British Museum alongside the Lewis Chessman. Uh, the Frank's Casket. It's an early 18th century. It's Anglo-Saxon. It's made of whalebone. It's carved. And what's really interesting about it is the, the kind of the unique nature of the imagery which is carved inside this wonderful thing. It's hugely diverse. So 8th century, uh, you've got um, uh, culture clashes of kind of immense import, uh, which have been happening over the past centuries and it's continuing now. We've got the Viking invasions. Um, there's uh, all sorts of influences coming across from Ireland and also from Europe to Britain. Um, Britain has got its own Roman history, which actually relatively isn't that long ago. And it all gets kind of bundled and muddled together into the Frank's casket. So very, very diverse imagery. 
Um, they've got legends of um, Germanic peoples, a, a legend of someone called Wayland the Smith I'm going to talk about in a minute. Um, they've got a episode from the Sigurd legend, uh, so that's Nordic, um, a Homeric legend, there's a bit of Achilles. Um, there's even a bit of the legendary founding of England by Hengist and Horsa, which appears there. So important old English stories there as well. Um one of the things we need to know about this, of course, is that uh, it, it it depicts the wise men. And it's on the front panel. It's the, the panel that's actually caused the most scholarly interest. Is it clearly shows two, uh, the, two stories of the Germanic legend of Whalen the Smith and then the adoration of the Meiji, the wise men um, adoring Christ, getting down, bowing down to him on the right. And they are remarkably different stories. And it's quite weird having them in the same place. Um, you obviously, I think, will know the wise men's story. Um, James mentioned it there and we'll come back to it. But let's talk about Wayland the Smith, because to understand what's going on here, you have to understand that. So a Germanic story, um, Wayland is a smith. He's very, very, very good at smithing. And there's a very nasty king. So what happens is the king takes Wayland captive and hamstrings him, cuts his hamstrings so he can't run away. Um, what happens then is that this trapped man, this trapped smith, is made to forge weapons and armour and jewellery. And he does this until, for years and years and years, until Wayland gains the trust of the king's children and then, and then, uh, wreaks his vengeance. He murders the two sons of the king. He then makes um, drinking cups out of their skulls. He makes their eyes into brooches for the queen and their teeth into a collar for the princess. He then rapes and impregnates the uh, the daughter of the king and then finally finds a means of escape because he's been hamstrung, he can't walk, so he flies off. But he only does this uh, once he has cruelly uh, gloated, revealing uh, what he has done to the king, that the king has actually drunk out of uh, cups made by the skulls of his sons. So on the one hand, we've got this, uh, this appalling story of servitude, it's a story of death, it's a story of rape, and on the other, we've got one of... Um, it's It's... It's nothing less than the story of like the purest hope. I think that's what the um, the wise men story is in the nativity. It's it's hope brought about by the coming of Christ, and and that's what the wise men recognised. They recognised the the, uh, the the good news and the good deeds that they would believe would were coming. Um, so. In many respects, what we can see here at the beginning of the Frank's casket is the use of the wise men's story in contrast to Wayland the Smith's story as evidence for um, the benefits of converting to Christianity in the 8th century and how that was depicted in artistic If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Excellent, Sam. I mean, one of the things that I'm struck by is the prevalence of the adoration of the Magi in the nativity scene throughout culture. You know, we see it depicted there, and I'm going to end with a, with a sort of recasting of it by T.S. Eliot. But it, it absolutely everywhere. It's picked up in in poetry. It's picked up in literature. It's picked up in carvings like that. It's famously depicted in many many uh, paintings. But I want to pick up now what I was talking about earlier on. So this idea of gestures of deference, inspired by the wise men kneeling down or bowing before uh, baby Jesus. Um, and submission is, a, you know, is something that is a very common uh, form of behaviour. You see it in the animal kingdom, but you also see it throughout uh, the society and, and culture throughout the world. You can think about it in terms of religion. Uh, particularly Catholicism is full of bending down and bowing and kneeling. So it's a very sort of deferential form of religion. But it's also something that is part of political relationships. And, and the further back you go, the more deferential people seem to have been. Um, you know, in sort of feudal um, times, people would have you know, been quite subservient towards their, their superiors. By the time you get into the 19th century, post uh, industrialization the rise of the bourgeoisie there are big challenges to those kinds of m modes of behavior I mean, you can't think of i can't think of many examples of where one might today act in that way that you would actually bow uh, you know uh, other than in the presence of the monarch or other than maybe at church if you were of particular uh, denominations but what I want to talk about is a brilliant article that I read last night by an academic called James L. Hevier. Uh, and it, it appeared in a uh, 2009 uh, volume of Past and Present. And it's entitled The Ultimate Gesture of Deference and Debasement, 
kowtowing in China. And what it looks at is this practice of the kowtow, which is the act of kneeling and bowing the head to the ground. And the significance of this for British and American diplomats and scholars that was really something that was central to the way in which China and the West dealt with each other. And what's extraordinary is that within Chinese society, this is a venerable and ancient tradition, but it is something that in the 19th century, it absolutely scandalised diplomats and observers who saw it as basically subjecting themselves to a foreign power was something that they couldn't do and they saw the Chinese empire as semi-civilized in comparison with the highly civilized independently sovereign European nation states and so much so that somebody like the the former American president uh, John Quincy Adams um, concluded that the opium war the first opium war was not about opium at all, but about the Katao. In other words, that people were actually the, fighting over over status and subordination. And Lord McCartney, the first British ambassador to China, referred to the ceremonial actions of Chinese officials as tricks of behaviour uh, and referred to the term um, calisthenics. In other words, the idea that that basically this was a this was a trick that it was um it was something that was giving the impression that it l at least resides in a domain outside of dignified behavior and so what i want to do is just trot through the the practice and then the trouble that the western powers had with this ritual it was seen as a ritual of abject servitude uh, is something that was demanded by an oriental court that was utterly out of step with temporary, contemporary notions of sovereign equality. And this was what really, really worried them. And I've got a quote, I've got a quote here uh, that I think picks, picks it up and encapsulates it very, very neatly for us. This is a, a, a quote here from the Literary Digest on the 17th of March, 1900. The whole life of the emperor is ruled by the same petty ceremonial, which sometimes reveals a touch of oriental imagination, sometimes is merely barbarous. Nothing is more curious and comical than a state dinner. When the gong sounds, the emperor enters with his guard and proceeds to a low golden throne. The favourite courtiers who are present throw themselves on the ground to worship the Son of Heaven. The chief of the imperial eunuchs thrice cracks his whip, music begins, and the officials who are to serve the emperor enter, throwing themselves down nine times and bending their knees five times. Now, of course, in a world of Edward Said and his Orientalism, what we have here is essentially a Western construction and demonization of Chinese cultural practices that sees it very much in binary terms. So it's a Western construction of something that is incredibly negative about the Chinese. Now, what I want to talk about is trying to sort of unpack 
the, these practices that make sense within Chinese imperial society you know, at the time. And kowtowing was basically a simple act that was in religious practices in China for a very, very long time. Um, and today, it, it's not unusual to see it in Confucian temples, Buddhist temples, Taoist temples, where people make offerings, burn incense and kneel and bow before deities. Very, very, um, very, very prevalent. You can also see this not just in temple activities, but also in diplomatic audience ceremonies and imperial ceremonies at the imperial court and the it's utterly fascinating what the nature of it um and i i just want to sort of run through some of that um followed various temple rites so there were various sort of patterns of what would happen here there was an act of kneeling and bowing all sorts of other bodily practices that involved imperial audiences the audiences involving ambassadors from foreign countries were treated as part of this this ritual and there are a whole series of instructions. There are various sort of raised platforms with different stairways leading up to it. Different people would be separated one from the other. There was a guest ritual section in something called the Comprehensive Rites of the Great King, um, which gives us a fairly good idea of what happened. And I'll just read you a little extract here. Um, first, before and after imperial audience proper, there were numerous ceremonies, each of which emphasised the positioning, movement and actions of participants. For example, preceding diplomatic audiences, the foreign emissary would appear at the Board of Rights Audience Hall to offer up his credentials, communications from his prints and local pro products of his domain. Attendants at the board set up a table on the centre line in the upper part of the hall. On the day of presentation, the text tells us a translator and usher led the emissary up the stairs on the east side of the hall. The emissary's retinue proceeded to their position below the platform on the east side of the hall in ranked order and knelt. The emissary handed his credentials and letters from his prince to the official from the court of ceremonies who passed them to the vice director of the board of rights. The vice director placed them at the exact centre of the table and returned to his position at the left of the table. Facing north, the emissary and his retinue knelt thrice, bowing his heads to the ground three times on each occasion. And there were several other things that are also important to note here. First, the emissary was moved from the martial side of the hall to the civil side, so from west to east. And second, no communicative act was direct. All communication was mediated by a series of participants. In other words, you wouldn't see the emperor yourself. Now, you can see, of course, why this all this sort of kneeling that would have taken and, and, and kneeling at the threshold of the west door, three kneelings and then f nine bows in front of the forecourt, in front of the hall. You can see why this wouldn't have gone down, you know, particularly well with diplomats. Another form of ritual was a tea drinking ceremony. 
um, which reads, the text reads, Then the emperor bestows the tea, a special tea is brought forward, the emperor drinks the tea, all kneel and bow the head, the guards dispense the tea to the high officials and the ambassador who kneel in acceptance perform one bow, sit and drink. Have you ever been to a tea ceremony, Sam? Uh, no. I have I'm, been. I have no. been to a tea ceremony. A tea ceremony at a friend's. Well, actually, not a friend's wedding. A a, a my sister-in-law's sister's wedding, mm. and it was an incredibly elaborate uh, event. It took three hours. Meanwhile, <laughs> there was. Too long, a, too long. <laughs> meanwhile, there was no food but lots of alcohol, and there were there were a couple who were sitting on our table uh, who didn't actually turn up because I think they just had to go and lie down because they were so ill, having not having drunk the tea, but having drunk the the um, the alcohol that had filled the um, the the sort of gap between food. Mm. Anyway, I, my my main point here. There is a main point here. My main point here is that this is seen as a totally alien and uncivilised uh, ritual and people in the West are deeply suspicious of it and I think part of this is because there is a strong aversion to Catholicism uh, running through uh, Great Britain uh, during this time and they see the, the kind of the religious practices here as, as, as heathen and they're also I think with the there's a transformation in the 19th century where kneeling is associated with subjugation. And so kneeling at this time is associated with that. And I think there are, as we move into a much more bourgeois world, bourgeois society, this kind of obeisance is not acceptable. And so much so that we see a complete change since the Congress of Vienna not only in terms of definitions of sovereignty, diplomacy and commercial exchange, but the way in which diplomatic audiences in European courts had been standardised. So instead of all this sort of kowtowing, ambassadors entered the presence of the host sovereign, bowed three times in their presence as they approached, placed their credentials or letters directly into the sovereign's hands, exchanged pleasantries and then retreated as they entered. In other words, they didn't kneel, you know, or bow their heads in such an obeisance way. And after the, um, the about 1901, the King Empire is forced to comply with what have become globally imposed standards. Um, so there we are, Sam. Uh, all of that from the three wise men bowing down before the Christ child. Very good. Um, <clears throat> I was looking at a few pictures while you were just telling me about this and the behaviour of it. I'm looking at, here we are, Bartolome Esteban Murillo, 1660. There's another one by Jan Gossart, 1510. Another one by Hans Memling, 1470. And they all show uh, wise men kneeling down, um, which is uh, doing, doing the adoration. You've got the baby there, you've got the kneeling down. But the other thing is uh, really kind of struck me. Well, I talked about this a little bit with shepherds. Do you remember how, how, what does a shepherd look like? We both agreed that a shepherd needed to have a crook. That was quite important. And I talked a little about the history of shepherd staffs. What about wise men, James? How do you think a wise men should appear in the nativity? I think, oh, wise men, they should have a long silken flowing robe. They should have a pointy grey beard. 
mm-hmm. looking very, very wise. And they should have a, a conical cap or hat, yeah. like a sort of wizard's hat. OK, not a crown. Mm. No, I, I think you're, you're, you're right. You're I wouldn't, give, right, I wouldn't it... give them a crown, but but no, that, you know, but kid, I think I think some. But I think I think if you went to Tesco's or Sainsbury's in search of an outfit for your child who was to be dressed as a wise man or king in the nativity, you'd probably find a crown as part of that regalia. Yeah. I'd imagine. So popular understanding is probably incorrect, Sam. Yeah. Well, if you look at uh, early Roman Christian art, one of the things that you notice about them is they're clearly not wearing Roman clothes. Um, they wear trousers. They wear Phrygian caps primarily, so a soft kind of felt cap. Um, you might recognise that kind of liberty cap uh, from maybe the French Revolution where it's particularly well known it was used, but it was also worn a great deal in antiquity, particularly for uh, people coming from around Anatolia, for people coming from the east, which is where we we know that they came from in the story. Um, Interesting that there are some crowns later on, but they are shown as a motif um, much later on. These early depictions are very much um, non-Roman Christian, and they're being depicted in a Roman Christian tradition. So what we've got here are the wise men being, being depicted as outsiders or others one way or another which is really interesting so um you've got this understanding this belief that the the first people to accept jesus are 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 barbarians otherwise also known as gentiles that's another kind of uh, thing they're described as Uh, but not the jews that's what's really really important about it um and if you look at the images of these, the other thing you'll notice is that um, they're, they're depicted as others in, in a very clear way, in that, they're, that they're at least one of them is usually not white. And in fact, they seem to be the only biblical characters who are regularly presented as non-white. We obviously know today that none of the biblical characters, as we understand them, would have been Caucasian or European as we understand it today. But I think what's important here is is at least identifying the fact that these wise men um, were considered geographically, racially uh, other, somehow different to the other um, the, the other sort of main main characters in the Bible. Um, and it's interesting how that's translated. So if you look at this one by Bartolome Esteban Murillo, so 1660, he's Spanish. The uh, well, One of the Magi is very much uh, depicted as a North African or a Moor, um, which which I think makes sense because it was painted in the 17th century and you've got that whole history of um, Moorish control of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, but anyway, there you are, James. Just wanted to demonstrate that, uh, that there's something really interesting going on here about the way that wise men are depicted and about their being depicted as being different somehow from everyone else in the story well here's a different depiction of the the wise men and as i promised uh a a poem by t.s Eliot, or toilets as my a-level english teacher used to wittily refer to him as a famous poet well known to all Um, he's literary critic grew up in america studied at oxford the sorbonne harvard moves over to england uh on the eve of World War One, nineteen fourteen. 1914. He teaches, he's a banker, and then he becomes a very significant figure at Faber and Faber, very famous uh, publisher. And one of his most famous poems is The Journey of the Magi, uh, which he wrote in 1927. And this focuses 
on this famous biblical story of the three kings travelling from the east to Bethlehem to pay homage to to Jesus. And it's a standard sort of um, tradition. But what you've got is them actually complaining about how hard it is in this, uh, their journey. A cold coming we had of it, just the worst time of the year for a journey and such a long journey. The ways deep and the weather sharp, the very dead of winter, and the camels galled, sore-footed, refractory, lying down in the melting snow. There were times we regretted the summer palaces on slopes, the terraces, and the silken girls bringing sherbet. Then the camel men cursing and grumbling and running away and wanting their liquor and women, and the night fires going out and the lack of shelters and the cities hostile, and the towns unfriendly, and the villages dirty, and charging high prices, a hard time we had of it. At the end we preferred to travel all night, sleeping in snatches, with the voices singing in our ears, saying that this was all folly. Then at dawn we came down to a temperate valley, wet below the snow-line, smelling of vegetation, with a running stream and a watermill beating the darkness, and three trees on the low sky, and an old white horse galloped away in the meadow. Then we came to a tavern with vine leaves over the lintel, six hands at an open door dicing for pieces of silver, and feet kicking the empty wine skins, and there was no information, and so we continued and arriving at evening not a moment too soon, finding the place, it was, you may say, satisfactory. All this was a long time ago, I remember, and I would do it again, but set down, this set down, this, were we led all that way for birth or death. There was a birth, certainly, we had evidence and no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but had thought they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, our death. We returned to our places, these kingdoms, but no longer at ease here, in the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods. I should be glad of another death. What do you think of that, Sam Willis? Amazing. Um, yeah. I'd like to listen to that again, and then in a dark room, I think. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, listen to our podcast and scroll all the way forward, and you can hear it again. Into a dark room, yes. Wonderful stuff. Here you are, History of Wiseman. I'm just going to finish with a little introduction of a wonderful guy called Virgilius Maro Grammaticus. Uh, it's around about 700. He's probably an Irishman. Very, 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 very clever Irishman. And um, very wry, very entertaining. The only way you can really describe him is a, a pseudo-grammarian, right? He, he wrote a book which basically invents languages, invents grammar. It pokes fun at debates about Latin language. It's a, it's a mockery, essentially, Um and it, it raises the interesting question of exactly what he's doing there. So he's, he's mocking existing language and grammar traditions. 
um, which does uh, enable you to think about wise men in a different way. So did he think he was a wise man by uh, identifying the silliness in what other people were doing? Did others think he was a wise man or did he fool others into thinking that he was a wise man? Um, and a lot of what he writes is actual nonsense. I mean, it is complete gibberish. So he says that these people, when they were debating Latin, did X, Y and Z and it's just all, all complete nonsense. And um, he does this thing of word scrambling, which is really, really funny, where you basically have words and you take out the vowels so you end up with a sentence that's like e e e e o o o h h h t t f f a a s s p r m n d or otherwise that would be e and um he does he does this a great deal with people like cicero um and uh and virgil so like really really important people um and so it is nonsense or much of it is nonsense but it's written in a style of some knowledge and wisdom. So it's a, it's a wonderful proof that there is a lengthy and important history of being wise whilst at the same time speaking rubbish, <laughs> which I thought, James, is rather appropriate for histories of the unexpected. Absolutely. We're back to gibberish again, where we, where we began. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, anyway, I think there's actually a history of comedy there and um, certainly satire. And um, particularly poking fun at wise men and whether that makes you wiser than they are. It all becomes very, very complicated. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed our history of wise men. I thoroughly enjoyed that. There's much more for us to explore. Uh, If you want to find out what we're up to, please follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr Sam Willis. And if you're interested in the history of the sea, please listen to my other podcast, the Mariner's Mirror podcast. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter at James Daybell. The podcast is also on Twitter uh, at UnexpectedPod. And we are also on Instagram and Facebook, and we have an all-singing, all-dancing website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see all the things that we have been doing. You can have a look at our back catalogue. You can also purchase signed copies of our books, which will not arrive, I imagine, in time for (laughs) Christmas, uh, but certainly would make extraordinary New Year's gifts. Or if you get... If you get a windfall of money in your for Christmas, uh, why not spend it on a, a brilliant uh, historical book on the Vikings, Romans, um, Tudors, World War II, or our, our very special big book, Histories of the Unexpected. Uh, if you want to support uh, what we're doing, if you want to be a patron, head over to patreon.com and anything you can do to help us support what we're doing here to change the way in which people think about the past would be very much appreciated. Meanwhile, uh, festive greetings to one and all. (laughs) Absolutely. Have a wonderful time, guys. We'll be back again soon. Cheerio. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.